Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All things LRT, it's been kind of quiet for a while, certainly not as busy as it has been uh, in uh, the previous uh, last year, uh, which could be a good thing because things are, uh, I think, uh, hopefully uh, all going in the same direction. Uh, business owners, city staff, and Metrolinx went to Kitchener-Waterloo to look how uh, the businesses uh, handle themselves through construction and what they can expect as uh, the shovels go in the ground here. To talk to us about this, Carrie Jarvie is with us, Executive Director, Hamilton Downtown BIA, and on the line with us now. Hello, Carrie. Hello. Thanks. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, so tell us about this trip. Tell us about the road trip. It was a great road trip. So we have um, we we have close contact with our colleagues in Waterloo and Kitchener um, to try and get our make sure that we are prepared as a BIA. Uh, the chamber has really taken a great lead on doing the LRT ready uh, four part seminar series, and one part was the field trip yesterday. And I I think everybody who went um, can say it was a positive experience. It was great to be able to see, to look, to talk to people, to find out what people have done, what they would do differently if they could, if this situation was on their front door again. Uh, Were there any naysayers on board or was this just a a load of people who are supportive of it in general and, you know, just want to know the ins and outs of it? I think, I think there was a little bit of everything. Um, I didn't talk to everybody who was on the trip, but I think there was a little bit of everything. I think people are skeptical of change. And so I think that doesn't, I don't think that's going to go anywhere. And I think I took away most people were looking at what they could do and trying to find out what information will help them with their businesses. So in other words, the reality, it is what it is. What it is. There is going to be a, distru- a disruption, but how do you make the best of it? How do you turn it into something positive? Exactly. And that's what they were very practical. Um, they were arranged to have very practical people who were very positive about uh, the ION project and people who were not so positive about the ION project. Both were giving their feedback, giving their ideas on what they what they thought worked well, what they thought they would do differently. So how many uh, and who went? Give us a cross-section. Um, I think there was b- uh, multiple business owners as far as, um, I think you have quite a, a broad um, base of franchise owners, I would say small owner operated. Um, for us, we had, um, I think we had a, one of our, our larger scale uh, businesses. So I would say there was quite a big cross section of smaller owner operated retail to larger franchise retail. And uh, were they armed with questions? Were they what were they looking for? Yeah, people had questions. People were um, were really. Um, I think a lot of us, a lot of us were really taking the opportunity to look and to see. I, there was an advantage of not having trains on the trucks because you could see the tracks, you could see the overhead wires, you could see the station. So I think a lot of us were were taking the look and feel. You could see the development that was happening because of of the um, ION project. So I think a lot of it was the the look and feel and more of an immersion exercise and then had questions for business owners. And one of the persons we talked to was a small bookstore. 
and um, really had some great suggestions on on how they mitigated their losses. Give us some examples. So they did um, a program. They had a, a postcard at their front desk that, uh, like at their checkout, their cashier, that said, you know, these are ways that you can help us with construction. And it's, um, are you looking to, you know, buy your buy your Christmas gift cards now? Buy, um, are you going to a shower? You know, do you need a book? Mm. You know, things like that. And that's what she said is that that a lot of people want to help. Customers want to help the businesses, knowing that there's construction in their area. They may not know how to. So really make sure that they know they're equipped with the tools that say, hey, you know, this is how you could help us out in a positive way. And what were some of the major concerns of the people that you took up? What what are they? uh, Obviously, loss of business. uh, But again, what so what kind of solution can make up for that? How 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 do they go home feeling good about the whole thing? Um, Well, that's going to be unique for each person. I think that is that was on there. I think there's a difference in if you're a retail shop on King, you probably have a different view yeah. than if you're in Jackson Square. You know, there's probably different pros and cons. Um, I think they're going to. I think the biggest thing that is that was. I think that I hope that what the biggest takeaway was this that this was practical information that we can learn and tweak and that this is working together. That's what I think what was great about yesterday. It was somebody from everywhere along the line from east to west. Uh, and are there a series? I understand there are a series of these throughout yes, this. Yes, there's going to be, there will be two more and I believe the next one is um, like a customer management system. Like mm-hmm. um, some have done, a lot of the retailers in, from what I understand in Kitchener-Waterloo, have, have done a really great job of reaching out to their um, customers, maybe not walking in their front door. Mm-hmm. And so making sure that they have a really good customer management system beforehand. And then I believe the other one is looking at social media. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because as, as, as you're describing all of this, it's it's great marketing and great marketing ideas, whether you're getting an LRT uh, tearing up the street or not. Right. Uh, this is also, uh, and, and I'm sure, you know, it's easy to say, the, say this from this side of the microphone, but it, it could easily be a great opportunity as well. It could. And that's where I think it, it really is the, the, with the intent with which you're going in. I mean, yes, is construction going to be difficult? Yes. Construction is difficult. What what vein are we going to go in? Are we going to work together? Are we going to try and be as prepared as possible? Are we going to make sure that we know how you can get to your you know get to your favorite record store? Yeah, that's and that's what we look at. Our biggest job is is making sure people can still get to the places that they want to go to. Did anybody comment uh, that was up there as far as how long their business was disrupted? Obviously, it's going to take so much time to complete this project, but, you know, there, you know, it's not the whole thing closed at any one given time. It's sort of done no. in sections. Did they speak about that at all? They, and, they did. And one thing that was interesting with that was working with, like, uh, in, in, for, in our area, International Village, King West, you can work with a BIA. But it was really making sure that you have those communication links that is, you know, if we're if King and James is at a full stop, is that's not the best time to close King and Houston, you know, for mm-hmm. for north south traffic. Right. You know, it's making sure, and those are what they really worked with with the the in in that case it was the region to make sure that they have, you know, you're doing you're you're doing what works best. So who were these people talking to? Uh, were they talking to other merchants up there? Yeah. And so w- did other people come out to help sell 
uh, Hamilton on uh, on the experience they went through in KW? You know what was interesting is that it was the it was not a sales pitch at all. <laughs> it was really interesting because it was very much we walked the entire route mm-hmm. in um, in Waterloo and spoke to people of different like one is a is a very niche grocery store, um, a restaurant full service like uh, I would say it looked like a beautiful higher end restaurant, a bookstore, and um, then we had also the region the BIAs. And um, a gentleman that actually has a business in both the Kitchener and Waterloo BIAs, and so we're able to come and share what their what what their strengths and weaknesses of the processes, what they found were the strengths and weaknesses of this process. What did they feel was the biggest uh, challenge? I don't want to say downfall, challenge or setback for them. I mean, obviously, it's always it's great for us because we get to watch someone up the road do the same thing. Uh, so, and, so, and that's what so, they keep so what are they looking at us and saying? Hey, don't forget, you got to do this. You know, and that's what I, a lot of it is, is. They keep saying, "You're so lucky, you can start now." Like you're so lucky, you can prepare. They don't feel that they had as much time to prepare. Yeah. So I think that's one thing that they're really saying. Oh, we wish we were in your position, um, that we would have more time to prepare. I think um, there's also an opportunity. I think they really just stressed. Um, they really, I mean, they're now at the point there's, you know, there's, there's shovels aren't in the road. They're waiting for, you know, vehicles. I think they're at a point now that they can kind of, you know, evaluate what happened. And I think they're really saying, you know, like the preparation is key, making sure you're ready for it, and communication, like making sure that we're communicating right along the line. Um, what's closed? What's open? Where, you know, what, what are the best uh, ways for people to be able to get around our, our beautiful city. Uh, what did they say the be- the biggest benefit was? What did they say the biggest negative has been? De- development. Yeah. Development. The development along the route. And actually, I was on vacation in Detroit. And, um, well, I did. I went around Lake Erie. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but Detroit had the same thing. There's areas of Detroit that were just being built like gangbusters along along the LRT route. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing is that they're seeing the development and they're seeing a lot of um, a bigger mix of development. And I think that's what they're really excited about. And I think that's where they're really finding, um, they're finding a great success. I think from what they were kind of, I think they were more learning from, there, there is a loss of business. I think with construction, there's going to be a loss of business. And I think that's what they were really saying is that to take advantage of the opportunity we have to prepare ourselves to um, mitigate. So uh, obviously that's the, the, the uh, you know, uh, the negative for them. I mean, I'm getting some Facebook posts at this point, you know, people who are saying that, uh, you know, the downtown Kitchener along uh, the King Street route is, uh, is a dead zone at this point, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, again, you're, there's no ways to get around that, is there? Yeah, and I don't, I see, we did not walk the, when we went um, as a, on a BIA tour, we um, walked both. And I didn't find Kitchener a dead zone. It was a little bit more, um, it was earlier, it was in June. Um, and Waterloo seemed busy for an August afternoon. Yeah. You yeah. know, I think, um, you know, I, I. This person just says, you know, obviously people are uh, aware that it's a construction zone, so yeah. they have a tendency to stay away. Uh, he also goes yes. on to say, I should say, some businesses will die, new ones will open, change does that. So again, it, it's it's like we said about the marketing ahead of time and, uh, you know, developing your customer base. I mean, that just, that just goes without saying nowadays. Right. And I think if you look at even the redevelopment that has happened along King Street without, like prior to full LRT, mm-hmm. I think, I mean... 
cities do change. Like there yeah. are that yeah. is, and it's it's yeah. just making sure that we're we're open for everybody who wants to be here. Uh, you were talking, uh, and there's been some chatter, and, and I remember when we were talking about bike lanes and, mm-hmm. and blah, 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 10, 12 years ago. Uh, I always thought there was a hidden resource in the downtown, and that being alleyways, because yeah. somehow there's a weird little neat network downtown of these things and little wee side streets. How can we better use these? That's a great question, and that's something we're looking at. So we already have an alleyway project that is actually in its um, second year. It was a pilot project that was done a few years ago. It was brought back with the intent of making the alley behind King Street from James to Wellington mm-hmm. more approachable. It is, um, it, is a long, it is a long go. There is so much opportunity for that, and that's just one section. I think there's a lot more opportunity for things for cycling, for um, uh, deliveries for even just using it as a back entrance, um, if yeah. they have that capacity. It's, if you're in the middle of a block, is it going to be easier to somebody to walk through to uh, you know, an alley to be able to get to your store? Mm-hmm. So there's uh, two more. Th- these meetings are a series. There's two more left. Are they different? Are they named at different things uh, for every meeting? Is it different people for every meeting? Not different people. It's all for people, for businesses along the corridor right. is, is the intent of this. And it is, it is intended to be a uh, business preparedness. That's the, the goal yeah. of, of right. the series. And it is um, the next two will be like, I think I, I, I'm almost 100% certain the next one is on the, yeah, the customer management system concept. And then the following one would be social media. So, so, uh, so they are seeing, you are seeing development along this route. You are seeing the benefits uh, even during this phase of the construction. It, it looked to me like that was the case. Very much so. And it was, I think, um, I would, I felt very strongly that in this, like on the on these tours, it has all been very practical information and not, not the dog and pony show. Like it wasn't a sales pitch, right? Right. right? It really was. Hey, if we if we were going to go and do this tomorrow, this is what I would want to know. Right. And that's where I'm hoping this series will continue that way, and I think it will. Like the chamber has been doing a really great job of making sure that that's the intent and that's the message, and that this is value. Like it is valuable information for people. Uh. So what was the buzz on the bus on the way back? It was. Um. It was interesting because it was. It was. I think a lot more of it was just. Um. You know, I think people were processing of how how you go and take those strategies and implement them. Like, what what do you mm-hmm. what's your next step? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I guess it all sounds good when you're doing it on a road trip, but how do you actually make it happen? So now you're going to take this back and 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 see. Okay, well, how do I then take this and put this into my you know my franchise or into my you know um, you know my my retail business? How do I then take these tools? And, and make them relevant to me and, and really be ready for it. And I think this is what's nice is that we're talking about being ready. And, and that's, the, I think, really an exciting thing is that we can now plan. We can now make, you know, make things happen. Obviously, Carrie, uh, this discussion has been going on for an awfully long time <laughs> at several different levels. Yes, it has. Um, and it seems as if the waters are calming a little bit. Uh, is that just because it isn't, you know, been in the news from my perspective? Or uh, do you get the feeling that people are starting to come on, more are coming on board? I think, I think most of our 
businesses, whether they're for it or against it, I think are kind of realizing it's most likely happening. So let's, you know, be ready for it. And let's, you know, and I, I say the same phrase, my job is not to run a backhoe. My job is to make sure that I'm ready when there's a backhoe in front of your business. There you go. Yeah. And so whether you view it as a new bicycle or a root canal, that's up to you. <laughs> exactly. And that's where, you know, and my job is to tell me what you need to make this happen. Like if, if this is where we also have, we have commuting. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I need to make sure that there's a, a whole bunch of office towers that people can still come yeah. to work. Yeah, good point. So, and it's making sure that that's, you know, that's all ready to go. Carrie Jarvie has been with us, Executive Director, Hamilton Downtown BIA, uh, doing the road trips up to KW to see how they're doing it and hopefully uh, learning from them, which is a great idea, of course. Carrie, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We have been talking about uh, border crossings since, I, I guess, the winter time, and those horrific stories of people uh, risking life and limb to uh, cross the border uh, into Manitoba, parts of Manitoba, Emerson, uh, Manitoba, and uh, going through holes in the fence, per se, as opposed to going through the actual uh, border crossings and, and, of course, legalities third-party uh, act, all of this sort of thing, all making this the best option for them. Uh, many predicted that this would come to a head in the summer months, and of course it certainly has done that, uh, as we've seen in Quebec and in Cornwall, where uh, little tent cities have uh, have been appear, have appeared. Uh, uh, 7,000 um, asylum seekers in six weeks have crossed from the United States uh, into Canada. And uh, you might remember last week there was a message going out from the government saying they've got to do more to be proactive and educate people that are coming in of what their chances are of staying. And, you know, it's not just a case of, hey, come on in. Uh, there's, There's no strings attached. And that's certainly not the case. Uh, And, of course, it appears that that message is being heard and that they have seen a slowdown in the amount of people coming over. These are largely uh, Haitian immigrants who, uh, of course, uh, ended up coming to the United States and Canada uh, after the uh, earthquakes uh, in uh, 2010. But uh, those temporary that temporary protected status is going to expire in the United States in January. Canada has extended that. Um, so that has a lot of Haitian Haitian people who came from that area after post-earthquake now fleeing the United States, hoping for a better uh, kick at the can in Canada. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Laura uh, Matacoro is with us, Assistant Professor of History, McGill University, and on the line with us now. Hello, Laura. How are you today? Thanks for taking the time to join us. Hi, Scott. I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you again for uh, taking the time. So why the slowdown at this point, do you think? Oh, I think there are probably a number of reasons. We know that historically migrants move largely because of information that they're receiving, either from family members or community members or governments that indicate um, whether or not it's an ideal 
move situation. And so I think probably what's happening is that the federal government has been more explicit in the past few days saying, you know, we do have immigration and refugee processes in Canada. Even if you present yourself at the border, you still have to make a case before the Immigration and Refugee Board. And I think that that message is probably uh, circulating amongst the Haitian community. Uh, People in the United States are hearing about it and rethinking whether or not it really is in their best interest to try and make a refugee claim in Canada. But people are still coming, and so that indicates that there still is fear and concern about being deported to Haiti, which remains a very unstable um, political, politically and economically. Uh, so, it, But it is interesting to see the kinds of, of numbers. Um, so there is some suggestion that the federal government's message is having an impact, but we might see those numbers go up again. So who knows how permanent this, this shift is. That's what my next question was. Do you think this is temporary then? Do you think uh, that these numbers will continue to, to decline? Or, uh, well, I think that's the most important question, uh, whether they stabilize, stay the same, but will they decline, do you think? Um, I think it's really hard to tell. I think there's so many factors at play in terms of how people are making decisions in this current moment. It could have everything to do with the political climate in the U.S., the political climate in Canada, um, the political climate in Haiti. And these things are, are changing in terms of how people are thinking about um, the stability in each of these places in particular. So um, I think it is hard to tell whether or not the numbers are going to to go down or stabilize or increase. Many predi- so I don't like to predict the future. <laughs> yeah, very difficult. Um, we we were talking to experts on this back in the winter time when the when the problem started to present itself in Emerson, Manitoba. Many predicted that this was going to happen way back then. Um, how did we get here? Why did we see this coming? Well, I think there are a couple of things that um, that sort of led to that forecast. One is we know that people are in, are not inclined to make difficult border crossings in the winter. Uh, because the weather makes it so much more difficult. Um, so certainly there was an expectation that with the milder weather in the spring and summer months that we would see an increase in numbers. And I think people have been watching the situation in the United States and watching just a series of shifts in terms of immigration and refugee policy, beginning with the travel ban, uh, the halt on resettlement programs. And so all of these moves by the Trump administration really pointed to um, greater instability and insecurity for people who have refugee claims in the system or were thinking about making refugee claims. And so I think that uncertainty certainly um, led people to think that there might be growing numbers coming uh, north this summer. Um, I'm sure you've talked about it with other experts, but the Safe Third Country Agreement really does play mm-hmm. a critical role in this in this situation because there are exemptions within the agreement but also people don't present themselves at regular border crossings right. They have an opportunity to have their case heard in the system. And I think that that message has gotten out quite clearly, and that's why we're seeing the kinds of movements that we are in Quebec and in Cornwall. Um, how did the message get out that this was a free-for-all? Um, is the prime minister to blame for opening his arms after reacting to what President Trump, the rhetoric down there, and saying, you're all welcome here. Is is he to blame from op- for opening the arms but not doing the heavy lifting, but not dotting the, the, the I's and crossing the T's here? Yeah, I don't know that I would describe it as a free-for-all, and I don't think that I would put the onus on the Prime Minister's comments. Certainly, 
Um, Prime Minister Trudeau has been very careful about suggesting that Canada remains an open and welcoming society vis-a-vis some of the moves that we've seen. Let me just interrupt you there, Laura, and then I'll let you continue. And the reason that I I bring this up is yesterday I'm watching on the news Safety Minister Goodale say, you know, we've been clear about this all along, that your background will be checked and da-da-da-da-da, which, you know, is all status quo, is all stuff that we knew. But he said that we've been clear about this all along, and I'm not sure that's been the case because if they've been clear all along they wouldn't be doing damage control now and again i go back to experts in the winter that said we're going to have an issue here if we don't address how we're going to handle it so is it i I guess to tie the prime minister's comment or the comment about the prime minister and and then loop goodales into this are are they sort of playing catch up here uh and, and did they really do a good job of presenting the case at the beginning of this I think probably, um, and it's, it's, an, it's a, an excellent question and, and very fair observation, because certainly the government's rhetoric has changed in the past week, where they're being much more explicit about, you know, the, the procedures and, and policies in place that uh, govern refugee movements and, and refugee claims in Canada. So certainly something has changed in terms of the government's mindset. My suspicion is that it's not just the government that was setting the tone, but that, um you know, people who are talking to their families in Canada, you know, there's a reason that we're we're seeing Haitian migrants coming um, to Canada in particular. It's not only because their temporary status is, is about to expire in the U.S., but there's also a very dynamic Haitian community in the country. But is that, that Haitian, is that Haitian community getting the same message? Is the Haitian community getting from the message from the government, hey, come on in, <clears throat> excuse me, come on in, everything's cool. And, and you know, whether it's Haitian family encouraging the, them to come, they're still getting that message from someone. Yeah, I think that they are getting, I mean, they're certainly thinking that Canada is a safer place. And I think maybe the the nuances and the complexities of the legal process and the fact that their cases have to go through the Immigration and Refugee Board, which does have a 50% um, rejection rate in recent years in terms of Haitian claims. So there is no guarantee that everyone who is making a refugee claim um, will will be accepted in Canada. And that maybe that statistic maybe hasn't been you know circulated the way that um, other information has. But I think one of the things that people are banking on is that in, in the case of, of coming to Canada and being able to make a refugee claim, that's not necessarily something that they feel they have the opportunity to do in the U.S. And so I think we're seeing um, a different perception of the two systems. So um, obviously we've seen a lot come in. That is slowing down a, a bit. We're not sure how that will move forward. How many, you know, I don't know if you could put a number on it percentage-wise, but how many will be eligible to stay? How many will be eligible to leave, or, or sorry, uh, will have to leave, just simply because it's they're labeled as asylum seekers as opposed to refugees? And there's others standing in the queue that are in dire need as, as much, or if not more dire need, than they are. Yeah, so it's really interesting the way that our immigration and refugee um, system has evolved. Um, basically, what happens is that it's, everyone's case is heard on an individual basis. So it's impossible to say sort of numerically um, how many people will be permitted to stay or how many will be returned um, on the basis of their refugee claims and whether or not they're considered refugees. So Canada has an obligation to hear these claims on the basis of its signature to the 1951 Convention relating to the status of refugees. So I'm going to get a little bit historical. Uh, no, that's cool, because that, that all leads yeah. into the whole third-party <laughs> thing anyway, so go ahead. Yeah, exactly. 
So because Canada is a signatory to the convention, there's an article in that convention, Article 33, which says that states cannot return people without determining first whether or not they have a legitimate fear of persecution. And that's the basis that the Canadian government uses to determine refugee status. It's based on an individual fear of persecution. Um, and so it's a very narrow definition. It doesn't address, you know, mass movements after an, an environmental disaster right. or mass movements because of economic strife. It's really individual. So these people have to make, have to convince the Immigra- Immigration and Refugee Board that they personally have a fear of per- persecution on various grounds. Um, and so we don't know how the Immigration and Refugee Board will hear these claims because they are done on an individual basis. Let me ask you. Let me ask you about the third-party agreement because um, we've had experts on on both sides of the fence on this, and many have said that the problem is that agreement, and that it's forcing people through the fence as opposed to through the actual border crossings. Uh, others will say the issue is, as you've mentioned, this isn't designed. This 1951 convention was not designed for mass exodus. Uh, the way that this, uh, uh, with the way the situation is now, uh, therefore, if we drop the third-party arrangement, all it will do is flood the people in through the borders. It's not an issue of entry points; it's an issue of numbers. We have to be able to figure out how many we can take, the plan to process them, how it's all going to work, and then, of course, figure out you know what's the quickest way in and out. Yeah, so that's an excellent point. And I think one of the things that um, we have observed historically is that since 1978, um, there's been a much more formal process for people wanting to make refugee claims uh, in Canada. But the complement to that is that the federal government has, on occasion, developed special humanitarian programs to relieve the kinds of pressures that might um, be placed on a system if you have large numbers of, of people coming in at once. So these can be sort of amnesty programs or temporary um, residence programs. So there are there are distinct streams in which the Canadian government has provided refuge historically. So some of those are the legal obligations due to the convention. So people presenting themselves at the border are convention refugee claimants. And so there's a process to hear those claims, and then there are all these additional complementary humanitarian programs which the government has implemented at various points, either to relieve you know, humanitarian pressures or mm-hmm. administrative pressures, or to directly respond to situations um, that they're, they're seeing overseas, so Syria, for instance, being a special program that um, relies on the convention definition, but you know, was clear about we're going to resettle 20,000 people. Laura Ma- uh, Matacoro has been with us, assistant professor, history, McGill University, uh, officials saying that the rate of illegal immigrants at the Quebec border is starting to slow down. Uh, Laura, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. Thank you. Uh, Leslie Shaughnessy is now with us, uh, the mayor of Cornwall. Uh, Cornwall has hastily built a, t- a tent city that, has- uh, that houses hundreds of people who have crossed the border uh, illegally. Hello, Leslie. Thank you for taking the time to join us. No problem, and I didn't build no tents. <laughs> Who? <laughs> That's an interesting point. Thank you for that correction. How did the tents get there? Uh, the uh, armed forces um, uh, were brought in. They, uh, I believe, they began their work on Friday or Saturday. Uh, you now have accommodations that are on site in the tent for approximately 500 people. And were you consulted at all on this? Uh, we were informed on it. Right. Um, we were not asked, uh, do, do you want it? Don't you want it? Uh, you know, in that, in that, in that sense. 
Um, it's basically the federal government entered into an agreement with NAB Canada and away they went. Uh, where are the tents? The tents are in uh, behind the NAB Canada Centre, which is a large complex, uh, probably about 700,000 square feet, um, that uh, provide, acts as a uh, convention centre, hotel, a training centre. Uh, you know, it, it's a multifunctional building. And who is paying for this? Federal government. And so what is the buzz in Cornwall? What are people saying? Um, I have not, uh, you know, personally heard negative comments. We had a special council meeting last night. Um, the uh, council members have not been hearing really negative comments. Certainly they're out there, but they are not directed or focused at us. Uh, it, it's more focused at maybe the immigration policies, and the, you know, the frustration there, uh, things like that. Mm. But not against the, the, the uh, people that are coming to Cornwall. The people coming to Cornwall are families. Um, and, uh, the, you know, they're not like a refugee that comes with their clothes on their back. Right. These individuals that have come and established themselves, uh, maybe in the United States or wherever. And, uh, you know, they, they are coming with some resources of their own. We have had absolutely no incidences um, with the refugees. We have also, um, I have visited the center on, uh, on Monday. They are connecting themselves as hotel guests. So how many are there now? I'm going to say there's probably anywhere from 275 to 300. Right. That varies on a day-to-day basis. Um, the, uh, once they are processed at the NAV Center, first of all, security checks are done at the point of entry by the RCMP and the, uh, the CBSA. Security checks are done prior to them coming to Cornwall. Anybody coming to Cornwall is deemed to be very low risk, um, and uh, their families. Uh, so, um, do you know the uh, whether uh, the uh, the tent village is temporary? How long they plan to keep it there? Well, I, I think the reason why that was put up is because the NAV Center has some bookings in September, right? Uh, through the month of September, so that the people that are having their lodging inside the uh, right. NAV Center will be moved out into the tent complex. And once that is come, uh, they get through the month of September, then I would imagine they would be reintroduced back into the room. At least the people here. This is not a long-term uh, place for them to stay. This is an interim setup, temporary setup, um, until they find a place where they want to move on to. Uh, the numbers are down. The government's reporting uh, after a- an educational program. Is that reassuring to you? Um, yes, as far as you know, as far as uh, Canada goes, as a country, as far as the municipality goes, the impact that would become from these uh, refu- or the uh, asylum seekers here is not really an issue. We have not expended city resources other than a few employees that are there to provide information. So, uh, so far, everyone is quite welcoming in the uh, town of Cornwall, then? Um, I would say for the most part, that is a correct statement. Um, Like I'm saying, nothing has come through my office. Uh, As a matter of fact, we may even get more comments from people that live outside of Cornwall. (laughs) People that live in Cornwall. It seems like everybody wants to weigh in on, uh, on an issue like this. But then again, those concerns, those comments should be focused to the federal government, not on the city of Cornwall. Leslie, Leslie O'Shaughnessy has been with us, Mayor of Cornwall. Leslie, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Not a problem. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. 
Round one of NAFTA is over. Uh, the rhetoric, uh, all of that uh, irrelevant. Now time to business. Uh, what did they accomplish in that first week? Uh, let's bring in Patrick LeBlanc, Associate Professor, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa, and with us now. Hello, Patrick. Thank you for taking the time to join us. No, no problem. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you for taking uh, 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 your expertise and, and helping us uh, in, bring it down to layman's terms so we can all enjoy it. Uh, what was the purpose of this first week? What is the purpose of these first five days? Well, I, I think that the, the purpose was really for each side to uh, make their, their positions uh, known. I mean, uh, we know that there have been uh, public uh, speeches made about what the Americans wanted, what the Canadians wanted, what the Mexicans wanted. But, you know, one is for public consumption. But then behind closed doors, that's when the negotiators sit down and say, OK, you know, let, let's talk business. Let's let's leave the politics aside for now. Uh, let's really focus on how we can achieve um, a, a, a new NAFTA uh, that ultimately would be good for the three countries. That's really the mandate that, that the negotiators have is to come up with a deal uh, that uh, basically each government can go back to their population and say, look, this is what has been negotiated. This is overall a good deal for Canada or a good deal for the U.S., a good deal for Mexico. And yes, we've had to compromise here and there, but here's how we're going to deal with those compromises internally. But overall, this is a good deal. So that's really the objective that they went in. But of course, then each country has its own, in a way, interpretation of what a win looks like. Right. And certainly, given the rhetoric that has been coming out of the White House, especially by Mr. Trump, um, I think all three countries, are, our nego- sets of negotiators, are, are really concerned to make sure that they can provide uh, President Trump with clear wins that he can go back to his own base hmm. and say, look, you know, this is an improved deal, and here's how it's going to make your lives better, ultimately, while at the same time, of course, not making uh, NAFTA more protectionist. So that, that was really kind of setting, if you want, the agenda for the upcoming negotiations. Every side uh, putting their positions, you know, the things that they may not be ready to compromise on, uh, the things that they're looking forward into this this, this uh, negotiation. I, I guess, you know, to put it in, in, in say, uh, more standard terms or layman's term, it would be, you know, when you see dogs that meet each other and they kind of sniff each other. You know what, Patrick? That's probably quite accurate for everybody. I, I think a lot of people can visualize our politicians doing you know, that. A little bit of growling and barking <laughs> and sniffing, uh, but ultimately, you know, how, how can we be friends? Um, so is this first week really about process and procedure and agenda, or are they actually talking policy? Is this actually about, okay, here's the few things that we want to talk about, there's the few things you want to talk about. Is this setting up the next meeting more than anything? Yeah, I think it's it's setting up the, the next series of meeting. Uh, we know that the next one it will happen in a few weeks in in Mexico, and then uh, later on in, in Ottawa. Uh, in Mexico, so, will they get into the meat of the deal then and start yeah, no, taking this back layer will. by layer? Yeah, I think what, what because ultimately what you have are, are negotiating teams that are focused on each of the chapters uh, that uh, would be present in a new NAFTA. So existing chapters that are there, let's say uh, a chapter on the rules of origins that decide in a way how much North American content should be in a product, let's say a car, for the car to be able to cross the border without uh, uh, imposing any tariffs. So there's going to be uh, one group negoti- basically negotiating that chapter on rules of origin. I know the Americans have mentioned that they would like to increase the percentage of North American content. They say that they would like to impose 
a minimum U.S. content within that North American content. So there's going to be one group that will be looking at that. Then there's going to be another group that's going to, that will look at intellectual property rights. Then there will be another one that will look at, let's say, e-commerce. And, and then you have the chief negotiators whose role is really to coordinate all this activity and really see you know, what kind of compromises can be made uh, to gain something at one end and potentially leave something else at the other. And in, being in, interacting, of course, with uh, the political level, which in Canada would mean uh, Minister Freeland and, and, and her office, and in some cases potentially all going all the way up to the prime minister, if towards the end of the negotiations uh, we're facing really politically sticky um, uh, issues that, that basically are, are preventing uh, the three parties from agreeing to, uh, to a new NAFTA. Uh, obviously, as you're presenting, this is an extremely complex process. Mexico trying to speed this up because they've got elections coming. How, how, does, how does that affect the talks? How do they keep this moving and not get bogged down on any one of these different chapters? Well, I think that the way that this works is that you have these different teams for each chapter. So they kind of all these things are moving in parallel. Some will move faster than others where you have more of a consensus, let's say, possibly on electronic commerce. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure that they're looking at what the three parties sign into the Trans-Pacific Partnership and saying, OK, well, you know, this would be a new chapter in NAFTA. Let's start with what we, we agreed on before. Uh, Trump ditched uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and let's see if we can bring in a lot of that language into NAFTA, and then maybe with some tweaks here and there. But all three parties seem to be uh, pretty much in agreement over a, a, an e-commerce chapter. Uh, so that could be um, one of the areas where you go forward, you build momentum uh, on agreements, and, and you kind of leave the harder questions to the end. So, for instance, Chapter 19, I'm sure it was discussed in, in last week, where the Americans have said, we want to get rid of it. The Canadians and Mexicans said, well, you know, we're, we don't want to get rid of it. So if we can't, if, if there's no way we can move forward on this file right now, well, let's leave it for, for the end. Or if not, if you know, there might be concessions behind closed door, not for, for political consumption, if, for instance, uh, Chapter 19 could be kept in the agreement, but it could be made uh, more transparent, for instance, where in a way, it would satisfy the Americans uh, the fact that, you know, that we have these binational panels to decide on softwood lumber, for instance, instead of going through U.S. Uh, courts. So, you know, you're trying to see how much leeway you might have in terms of saying, OK, well, you know, you want to get rid of this. Well, we don't want to. So can we meet in, in the middle? And if we can, well, let's start exploring this. If not, we'll leave it until the end. Um, so that's really kind of how this is building up. Uh, and, and, but certainly the first time around was much more about process and, and yeah, you, you kind of do the easy pickings first. Does it make it more complicated when other deals like the TPP enter into this? Cause obviously Canada and Mexico part of it, U.S. says they want out of it. How does that change dealings with NAFTA? Well, in a way it provides a lot of common grounds because that means that, you know, all, all three parties had at some point agreed on, on the TPP. Now, it becomes more of a political issue. It's, it's can you repackage these elements that were agreed to by right. the three countries in TPP into NAFTA and, salvage and kind something. Of sell NAFTA yeah. as a new deal without basically saying that, oh, well, there's a lot of TPP in the new NAFTA. Because, that, of course, that would not be very good uh, for, for Trump and kind of face-saving. 
But if you don't talk about TPP, and it's quite interesting if, if we listen uh, to what has been said on the Canadian side and Mexican side, very, you know, uh, officially no one is talking about TPP as potentially providing a template for many of the revised chapters in NAFTA. It's like no one is, it wants to talk about this because we're trying to ensure that Trump is not going to be forced into a corner by saying, mm. well, there's TPP stuff in there. I said no to TPP because it was you know, the second worst deal in, in history after NAFTA. Uh, so we can't bring it back through the back door. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting how it's going to be packaged. But I, I would not be surprised that uh, there would be a lot of TPP elements in NAFTA, which makes sense because TPP is kind of the latest, most advanced agreement yeah. that th- the three countries negotiated. So it should be there that they start, and then maybe they'll even improve on TPP. Um, uh, obviously, uh, next set of meetings in October uh, in Mexico, uh, then they move to Canada and then back to the States. Does it, does it matter geographically where this is being held? Someone pointed out that when it gets to Mexico, you might see more demonstrations or protests. You, you might see demonstrations, but for the negotiations, you know, they happen in, in behind closed doors in hotels. Uh, so for these people, it, it doesn't really matter whether they're in Ottawa or uh, in Mexico or Washington. They they just get go along and and and, and plow through. Uh, so you know that that doesn't really matter. What really matters, and, and this goes back to to your question earlier about the the time frame. You know, the Mexicans would like to have this uh, done before their their uh, presidential and, and legislative election next summer, because if not, it's going to stall everything. There's fears that uh, Obrador might become the new president and he's not so keen on free trade. So it could actually, um, you know, potentially stall everything uh, afterwards. Uh, but also the Americans would like a quick deal because it, it would give uh, Trump a win, which he desperately needs since he doesn't have any right now. And also, I don't think that um, the uh, for the midterm elections, uh, the Congress doesn't, you know, the, the, the members in the Senate and, of course, in the House, we're all facing re-election. I don't think they, they, they would rather have NAFTA being negotiated uh, and signed, and then they can sell that to their constituents and saying, look, this is what we've done, this is how, how we've done it for you, as opposed to kind of having this as part of the whole negotiations and then potentially having a change of uh, in Congress that would kind of reset the agenda for the NAFTA renegotiations and kind of potentially having to start over. Um, so so I, I, that's why the Mexicans and, and, and the Americans would like to do this deal quickly. They've, they've agreed on a, a very um, rapid pace of negotiations, almost uh, like uh, twice a month to some extent this, this, the, in the coming fall to have potentially a deal in the winter. Uh, for the Canadians, though, it's interesting. It kind of gives us leverage because we're not in such a hurry to have uh, the NAFTA negotiations concluded. So if our, our counterparts want a quick deal, that means that we, you know, we can hold out and, and, and yep. leverage this to our advantage. So that actually works well for, for Canada. Uh, we've all heard the rhetoric, Trump wants an American win. Can it be a, a win for everyone, uh, or is it just all in the packaging after it's all over? Well, I think it can be a win for everyone. Of course, I mean, when we say for all three countries overall, uh, obviously something has to give. You know, uh, unfortunately, free trade agreements cannot please everyone and cannot make everyone a winner. Uh, that's the reality of these things. But nevertheless, they certainly can make economies, countries better off overall. And then it's for each country and to, to decide how they're, you know, they're going to compensate in a way those who are more at the losing end. So, for instance, 
if you know we the the, the Americans have, have have asked to to you know to have greater access to the Canadian dairy market, which of course requires us to to look into potentially uh, creating a, a breach or a further breach into the supply management system, potentially uh, providing quotas for uh, imports of dairy products from the U.S. and Mexico, mostly from the U.S. Uh, so that could mean potentially lost revenues. And, and profits for uh, Canadian dairy farmers. Well, in this case, as we've done with the Europeans, probably the federal and provincial governments would be looking at uh, potential con- compensation, but certainly that's better than uh, trying to actually dismantle completely the Canadian dairy supply management system, which some people have estimated would cost Canada in terms of uh, compensation over $30 billion, which clearly, you know, politically is, is infeasible and financially too. So, you know, there, there are going to be compromises like that. So uh, Trump could say, well, here's a win. You know, we have greater access to the Canadian dairy market. Uh, but ultimately, uh, it's for us to find a way to maybe f- compensate um, Canadian dairy farmers if necessary. Or we'll see. Maybe, you know, we have more and more Canadian companies operating in, in the U.S. in the dairy market, whether it's Agripur or Saputo. So they might actually be the ones who benefit from uh, the possibility of, of, you know, re-exporting elements to, to Canada if necessary. So well, these are the kinds of things that we'll have to see. But ultimately, I think a win-win-win is possible. Then how it's going to be packaged for Mr. Trump to sell this mm. to, to his constituents, uh, that's for the Americans to figure out. But clearly, the Canadians and the Mexicans are very well aware of that. And I think they're, they're happy to work with their American counterparts in the negotiations to find ways to, to frame this so that even... Mr. Trump can go and say this is good for the American worker. And in the end, if you if you if you want to get what you want, you're going to have to give something up, aren't you? Obviously, this yeah. is how you know this is how negotiations function. There's no way that we can get everything we want, but certainly if 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 we we're, we don't have to buy the American uh, protectionist rhetoric coming out of the White House, because if that's the case, well, we always have the possibility of, of just leaving the negotiations and saying, look. You want to make NAFTA more protectionist? Well, we'll keep the status quo. We'll, we'll keep NAFTA 1.0, and then we'll see. Maybe later on there's going to be someone else in the, in the White House, and we can restart these negotiations. So wow, wouldn't that be leverage. interesting? Wow, that would be interesting. Uh, Patrick LeBlanc has been with us, Associate Professor, Graduate School of Public, uh, Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa. Patrick, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, Sky. It was a pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.